0: My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating Girl Boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August
1: McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex.
0: How often do you reach for your phone? How many hours do you spend scrolling, texting, or swiping each day? There's no need to stop and do the math, and I am not here to judge you, I promise. Nor is today's guest. We love our devices and social media, too, but I think we can all stand to be more mindful about our digital use, including the possible pros and some kind of big challenges it can present. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and today we're going to explore this topic with Dr. Julie Albright, author of Left to Their Own Devices, How Digital Natives Are Reshaping the American Dream. Before we dive in, a quick reminder to sign up for occasional Girl Boner extras by email at augustmclaughlin.com. I send updates about once a month featuring episode extras, fun surveys, news about upcoming events, giveaways, and more. You can also purchase my book, Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment, on Amazon, and most anywhere books are sold. A reviewer recently posted this on Amazon – I loved August McLaughlin's weaving of her own story into this manifesto for female pleasure and how-to for a woman's body. Whoever posted that, thank you so much. It really spoke to me and and goes after the message I went for with the book. If you find value in it, I would love to hear what you think by way of a review, too. You can also pre-order Girl Boner Journal, which is full of stories and writing prompts to deepen your sexual empowerment journey on Amazon. Now, I'm so pleased to welcome Julie Albright to the show. Julie is a digital sociologist, multi award winning professor, and sought after keynote speaker who has shared her expertise on The Today Show, CNN, The New York Times, and more. Her book, Left to Their Own Devices, will release this month by Random House Prometheus and is currently available for pre order. First, I want to thank you so much for being here and for allowing me to take a look at an advance copy of your book because. It's such an important work. It's so relevant. And also, I felt like I was reading this groundbreaking study. You seem like a a pioneer in this field of, of digital, you know, social media and the impact. And a lot of us have these kind of basic ideas about that. We've heard certain things. But to have this really... Incredible guide that has it's so much research is involved in the book, and you make it very practical. and I think we can apply it to our lives, which is so big. So thank you for being here.
1: Thank you. I appreciate uh, you having me.
0: I'm really curious. I feel like so many people when they're reading this book, especially people who did not grow up with digital technology. They didn't have smartphones when they were a toddler, you you're, you have to kind of think about your own journey. And like I was thinking about the first time, I heard about email. I think I was a senior in high school. And I remember thinking, that is so stupid. Like, who's going to use that? Because it was part of this college program at the time. And there were students that took college courses in high school. And they were using it. I'm like, well, you can only write to seven people. That's really dumb. And then like two years later, it's a huge part of my life. Do you have memories about your own first uses with technology of this sort?
1: Yeah, I didn't really grow up with computers so much, uh, so I came to it later and um, came online pretty early, though, uh, when people were just first starting on there. And I told my dad, I said, this is going to be huge. There was less than 3% of people online chatting and meeting, and my dad saw these conversations scrolling on the screen in chat rooms, and he said, why would anybody ever want to do that? (laughs) Had, not alone. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. So now, as you know, just walk down any street and you're going to see heads bent over looking at screens. It has been so ubiquitous now. It's It's incredible how mainstream it's become. And at what point
0: did you know that this was a field you wanted to pursue professionally?
1: Well, I started looking into online dating during the course of my master's in counseling, And it was, I was an early pioneer, so much so that I said, you know, people are meeting online, they're online dating, and people say, what are you talking about? They had no idea. But I knew that it was going to be huge. I just knew it. So uh, that's what got me started. And I just have been on the trajectory ever since, which gives me a little bit of a benefit to have the long-term view so I can compare the changes over time and what's happening.
0: Which I think is so important because, again, I think it does give us a chance to make choices in our lives. You talk about these three stages of our culture and the one we're in now being the untethered society and then the internet of me and the internet of them. And I know your book focuses on the first one. Could you give us a sense of what that means? What do you mean by the untethered society?
1: Yeah, well, I, I tend to see patterns. Um, I see the constellation in the stars. And so that's kind of what's going on. I saw all of these different studies coming out these different outcomes these different things happening and i saw the constellations i saw that they were all related under one umbrella so that's what i'm calling the untethered coming untethered or the untethered society that we're in now and that's the idea that things that prior generations would do routinely like get married or buy a home or have children or go to church for example or joining a political party Younger digital natives, those that grew up in this environment we're talking about, they're not doing those things anymore. So I sort of shorthanded it and called that the American dream, if you will. But it's this, this constellation of behaviors that were just routine routine goals for, let's say, prior generations and baby boomers. That's what they – buying a car. A lot of kids now don't even get a license. An Uber driver told me last night his kid will probably never drive a car in his life. And and that's where we're going now with this. This digital connectivity is changing the shape of our social dynamics, our social relationships, our social world.
0: That's so fascinating. And of course, there are many benefits and challenges with that, right? And one of the things that occurred to me as you were talking was, I'm really grateful that there is more freedom to make different choices, and part of the magic of digital technology. I know you talk about people having more space to explore gender identities that they didn't realize were a thing. You know, they might have only heard about two types of gender, and then because of the internet, they go, "Oh wait, there I am! Like I can be validated." Um, so, so there's this beautiful freedom, and maybe people who don't want want to have kids and before they felt pressured, but then on the flip side of that is the difficulty we can have with comparison to other people, to our own selves, Um, self-esteem. I actually polled some of my audience, and I asked them what impact social media has on their self-esteem and or romantic relationships. And 26% said it was mostly helpful. 16% said mostly unhelpful. 58% said a huge mix of both. Is that something that you have found through your study, is that it's kind of such a mixed bag?
1: Yeah, I've been looking at that for a while now. I've done studies for Elle magazine. I did one of the largest studies ever done on online dating and sex online and all this. Uh, And again, my dissertation, all my work's been in this area. And I've been exploring this concept called the virtual mirror. It's the idea that a mirror has always been a part of our self-reflection, of the development of our self-identity. It's been used as a kind of metaphor by psychologists to indicate the reflected appraisal of others, how others see us and how we internalize that into our self-image and self-esteem. And now I talk about this idea of a virtual mirror, that social media and online, you know, Facebooks and all these are serving as a kind of virtual mirror where they're reflecting back not a a clear image like a regular mirror, but rather more like a funhouse mirror that's warped or twisted because of things like the filters and photoshopping and face tuning. So you're more perfect or more fabulous and also the curation of these images to have the best life ever online. And what that's doing is it's, even the people themselves can't measure up to their own images so it's a kind of a thing where it erodes one's self-esteem for example let's say you put out these fabulous images and perfected bodies and faces and people sort of love you or give you affirmation for that image you inside know that's not you so the the greater the distance between that online image and the true self let's say the greater the chance you see that that can erode that self esteem because you're getting affirmation for a person that you're not. Ah. And the same thing, people, young people especially, are comparing themselves to these fabulous, fantastical others that really don't exist. Mm. And so it's driving a lot of anxieties and depressions because it's this fantastical world that one can never measure up to.
0: That is a lot of pressure. One of the participants in my very informal study um, said that, well, I'll just read the response here. I've gotten several cosmetic procedures that I'm 99% certain I would not have gotten without Instagram. There is a ton of pressure for me to look a certain way. And at one point, a date told me I didn't look like my pictures.
1: There you go. And I think that is more and more happening, especially as we've moved from dating where there were no pictures. Originally, people got to know the inner self. And many people that I talked to originally said that they f- met their soulmate. They'd never had this experience before because they were developing true intimacy and opening up and talking about things that maybe you wouldn't talk to someone in a bar that you just met. But And, and, and also they were meeting people that were against their type, but they fell in love with the inner person. And then they had this kind of a relationship. But now, since we have mobile phones and dating has turned more toward the Tinders and the Grinders and the Instagrams, it's more based, again, on physicality, on how attractive you are. So it's kind of like, you know, you want to be the most attractive. Who's the fairest of them all kind of thing? It's very competitive and it's gamified now. So, you know, you want to win those connections when people are swiping.
0: And then you do, but so it's, it's that funhouse that. mirror, right? So when you actually meet the yeah. person are you meeting? Because I I do know people and I I try to be authentic online. And I have a lot of friends who I tend to be drawn to people who are very authentic online. I think when I meet them in person, they're like, oh, that's exactly you. They put, you know, they want people to feel safe and all that stuff. But then I've also met people who are, it's almost like they create a completely disingenuous profile that has almost nothing to do with them, which is so interesting to me. And you talk about this term that I had not heard before, but obviously it's a very real thing, Snapchat dysphoria. Mm -hmm. What exactly is that?
1: Yeah, so it's just like your uh, listener had commented, this idea that when we create these fantastical selves, they're pretty amazing. So particularly women are now stampeding into plastic surgeons' offices to get plastic surgery to look closer to that tuned filtered image that they're presenting to others. They want to look like that girl with the flowers in her hair when they show up at a date. And the other side of that is I've actually heard of guys in fact not wanting to meet in person because they're so aware that they've created this false self that there's no way they could measure up in person, so they just sort of ghost or disappear on the person when it gets to the point. Of actually, hey, we should meet. We should go on a date. They just sort of fade out.
0: Oh, that's really that's really sad to me. The the Snapchat dysphoria and the procedures and all that stuff is so complex for me to think about because on one hand, I I want to respect any everyone's choice, right? To do what you want to to your body and all that, but the amount of pressure and the fact that. It doesn't happen in this little bubble. Like you're not just waking up one day saying, I want to look like the girl with the flowers in your hair. It's actually there's all this like pressure. And it's not something that anyone was actually born with. We aren't born so self-critical.
1: And some of it, too, to be fair, it's not just being a little bit better than yourself to stand out online you have to be more extreme so it's driving more extreme behaviors in general like these viral challenges you know kids are setting themselves on fire and burning their skin you know doing these crazy things to be more and more out there to hopefully get that attention that approval those likes that virality mm-hmm. online well, the same thing with the plastic surgery. So some of the surgeons are seeing girls that want more extreme, you know, giant boobs or more extreme figures because that's what's going to stand out online. So it's not merely just a little a little tweak or a tuning or a little, you know, being a little bit better. It's actually moving on this continuum toward being standing out more in a very noisy field of visual culture online. Have
0: you gotten a sense for what that does to one's psyche, those who actually pursue all these changes, once they have those changes, do they feel
1: better about themselves? Is this like a confidence booster? Well, I think that's the thing, uh, that social media is driving something called externality, that people are seeking approval, not from the inside or who they are inside or what they're about, but rather what they look like more and more so. Uh, There was a study that was interesting. They looked at diaries of girls from the 1800s and compared them to now in the television generation and found that the girls back then wanted to be more hopeful or more charitable or more patient, inner qualities of the self. But after television came along and we started moving into the visual, visual culture age, which we're in now, Girls started wanting to be thinner and prettier and better hair so that it's already starting to drive that. And now that social media has made sort of everyone a broadcaster, everyone a little influencer, that actually drives a lot of that um, behavior where you want to be, you know, who's the fairest of them all.
0: Mm. You have a really fascinating part of the book talking about digital foreplay Taking the place of actual sex. And I know, I don't remember if it was maybe Japan, where there was a study done where people are having a lot less sex because of like sex robots, virtual reality. I mean, that's what they were guessing in the report that I read was that they thought, well, people are taking care of themselves. You bring up so many points and I'm like, well, it could be so many things. It could be that insecurity of not wanting to see someone in person. So then, you know, um, what did you mean by that, the digital foreplay?
1: Well, I think there's a couple things going on there. First of all, uh, some research has shown, including some of my earlier research in this area, that as viewers view more porn, they're having less actual sex. So you could think like someone's libido or sexual energy, it's not completely unlimited. So it's sort of like they're letting that libido out around Fake sex, in a way, sex that they see on a screen. Uh, And the second thing is, because there's so many choices for dating now online with all these apps and social media, it appears that there are an endless sea of romantic possibilities. And paradoxically, no one's choosing So people now, young people, are more likely to be living single, living alone, being on their own. Uh, They'll be the most unmarried generation ever by age 45. So when you don't have a committed partner, you're also less likely to be having sex.
0: And the less you have sex, the less you desire it, typically. And one thing that's really interesting to me, too, is when I started this show, maybe like, I guess it was five years ago, maybe my first year, I, I believe, I had some question come up about masturbation. And I remember that I realized very quickly that people in like their 20s associate masturbation with porn. Like that's the first thing that they they don't separate those two. I'm sure there are exceptions, but that is not something that ever would have occurred to me. Like I just would not have thought, oh, well, if I don't have porn, then I can't have fun with myself, you know, just that it's that intertwined Mm -hmm. that's so interesting
1: yeah and we're now seeing the advent of new sort of fake people uh, artificial intelligence agents uh, little cartoons for example in Japan where young men are actually dating they say or even marrying these characters on a screen and part of it is you know they're cute they're little sexy looking anime girls And some of them, when you talk to these guys, they'll say, Well, she's never going to leave me. So, this idea that you get these sort of frictionless relationships where the girl, in a sense, is subservient, doing whatever you want, whenever you want, always there for you, always there to greet you happily. It's that we're just at the beginning of that phase now. And think about that. If you have this, this, agent, this person, this fake person that'll do anything you want whenever you want, be whatever you want her to be, that can be pretty enthralling for some people, particularly for those that maybe aren't as good at socializing. Sure. you know, so here we have and and that effectively takes them out of the the dating or the reproductive pool. and you hinted out earlier, we're seeing a drop in having children to the point where here in Japan and elsewhere, we've dropped below replacement rate, meaning we're not having enough children to replace people that die off. And mm. that has major implications.
0: That's so interesting. I mean, on one hand, I'm like, well, overpopulation is a big
1: deal, right? But if that kept going forever and ever, <laughs> right, then it, it becomes a thing. Yeah, it also becomes a thing competitively because you don't have a young workforce to take the place of those that are aging out of the workforce so it can actually impact a Uh, country's GDP. Mm. So things like, and also who's going to care for all these elderly people as, you know, we have this pipeline toward a graying America, for example. So it has a lot of very serious implications over time. And and then you have to rely on immigration, which that's a whole other. Right. It brings in
0: all these like Mm. pretty controversial. That's right. Among many people issues. That's right. One thing that was really fascinating to me was when I first heard about sex robots. And I thought, on one hand, I see a lot of benefits. If if you're somebody who, for example, has um, a physical disability or doesn't have access to a relationship or wants to learn about sexuality, blah, blah, blah. Like there's, there are definitely some positive, positive uses, but I, I shouldn't say I wasn't surprised, but I was disheartened when I saw what they all looked like. They looked like teenage girls. Like they looked like really stereotypical skinny white big boobed blonde 16 year olds and I was pretty upset about that because I feel like we can be using and I see this happen in positive ways where people use digital technology and social media to better the culture and to change some of these pressures but that that's where you know and I actually contacted that company and said could I please get a dude and could I get you know like I listed out all these different things and they were like no that's not available (laughs) Yeah. Have you seen positive uses? What are some of the good things that have come up in your research as far as the people who do find? I feel like a lot of people who have benefits have learned to set boundaries.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that in terms of online uh, dating and relationships and all, well, one interesting finding uh, that was perhaps surprising, but perhaps not once you think about it, is that particularly older women are more successful dating online than younger, say, in their 20s. So if you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s, you're more likely to meet a love of your life online. And if you think about it, at first, that might seem surprising because we think digital natives, those using the Internet for love, are are younger people. But When you think about it, if you're, let's say you're 20 years old, you're in college maybe, you're meeting people all around you, you might meet them at work or go to a club or Coachella or wherever you are, there's a large pool of dating availables. But as you get older, more people get married and there's a smaller pool that are single and a good fit. So it's enabling women that maybe are divorced or widowed or things like that to go on the Match.coms or the eHarmony's or these sites and actually meet you know, a new committed partner. So mm-hmm. that, that was a, a very interesting finding, I thought, that there's hope for people that maybe have aged out of the bar scene, let's say.
0: That encourages me a lot. Yeah, for sure. I know I have a sister who met her husband through online dating, and it was great because she doesn't like going to bars. She's she's very introverted. She worked in a school in a small town. Like, she only met adults who worked at her school, you know. So when when it opens up opportunities. But the thing is, too, I noticed is they met in person quickly. So it wasn't like this big, long, drawn-out thing where they were researching other online. And, you know, like, I feel like that can yeah. make a
1: difference. It can. I'll tell you why. There's a There's a really critical component. So in my dissertation, I looked at when People met in person, and it didn't match up to what they imagined online. And I asked people, did the person lie? Did they leave some critical issue out? Or did you, yourself, fill in the blanks incorrectly? And it turns out that third one, people filled out what they thought the person was, and when they met, they were disappointed. For example, one guy said, well, she said she was in shape, and that's not my idea of in shape. So that kind of thing. So the idea that online relationships allow a level of projection. You can project your innermost wishes and desires and hopes and dreams. And you've met Prince or Princess Charming and it's fabulous. And then you meet him in person and wham—you know, you're a little disappointed. So that's I think meeting earlier in the game is a good tip because you don't get those hopes up and you don't get, oh, we're getting married. And then you meet them and then the chemistry is not there. And how do you dial that back? That's really difficult. Yeah, so I didn't... would suggest meeting earlier than That's later. That's so good. And you reason. didn't
0: fall in love with like the fantasy then, right? That's... One of the other responses that I got was, let's see, where is it? My partner and I weren't spending much time together and I reconnected with my high school boyfriend on Facebook. It ended up ripping the relationship apart. And I'm currently not with either of them. So in that case, it probably was a fantasy, right? Like maybe remembering somebody from 10 or 20 or 30 years ago and thinking, oh, it's going to be just like my teenage
1: bliss. That is a key. And that's what's funny. For older daters, the striking up of these high school flames has led to a lot of divorces. And, you know, they're seeing people online and it could be someone they dated, but it could also be someone they had a crush on and they weren't quite where they were now, you know, where they've gotten in life now. And, oh, maybe I'll have a shot now at this person. And maybe actually they do. And they start that very intriguing process of of talking and again getting to know that inner self online through these conversations maybe they're not having at home with their spouse. So there's that element of the projection, there's that element of quickened intimacy and excitement and that kind of almost a forbidden fruit because you can't really consummate a relationship either physically or through intimacy in person over the online, so there's an excitement level that's maintained there. So I think that um, that's what matrimonial uh, family lawyers are seeing is a lot more divorce cases that have Facebook, for example, and this striking up of old flames going on.
0: Wow, yeah, that anticipation, like the secret and the mystery, is very compelling. Exciting, which we can intentionally create in a long-term relationship, but you have to work on it. And I think in the case – so, for example, that person pointed out they weren't spending a lot of time together. So that's an issue they could have addressed, right? So it's not like Facebook caused this thing on its own. But what happened was instead of them working on the relationship, it's like a distraction almost. And you go down this little
1: rabbit hole. Right. Well, I think that's the other thing. And and you said that relationships – you know, I hate the word work because it sounds so negative, but they do take effort and time and all – And again, you only have so much time, so much sexual energy, so much attention. And when you're putting it towards someone else, it can't also be going to your your main partner. So that's the problem. It's very easy to also have all the idealized aspects and none of the negative with these online loves, as it were.
0: Yeah. It seems like there needs to be conversations and thought about these things, instead of letting it just happen to you. I'm curious if this study or how this information and all of your work has influenced your own online behaviors and and the way you interact on social media.
1: Right. Well, I guess I know that uh, it's easy to project things. It's easy to imagine someone something that maybe they're not or that you hope they are. So uh, again, I think it's best to meet people early. Um, In my case, I've met a lot of great uh, business contacts and work contacts and things like that, which I probably wouldn't have met. So it does open up new social network channels uh, that are outside your friend and family network. So that's good and bad. Good because it can open up your possibilities romantically, work-wise, et cetera bad in that you don't have that check uh, and balance where you can go to your friend or your cousin and say, hey, what do we know about this guy? Because we don't know anything because he's not in that circle. He's outside of your inner social network. So
0: Yeah, that's huge. There's this group mm-hmm. I'm in on Facebook and it's A lot of women in the L.A. area. And one thing that's really cool, I mean, you see a lot of positive things in there and some negative things. But some of the positive things are, you know, when someone's really in need, they reach out and people help and it's beautiful. Another good use, I think, is occasionally somebody who's online dating will say, this person sexually assaulted me, or this person super harassed me, or was very inappropriate, and they will share their picture, and then inevitably a handful of people are like, oh my gosh, I swiped on that person, you know, or I went out with that person, the same thing happened to me, so there is like a, a sense of finding community and safety, like there's ways to use it in, in good ways.
1: Yeah, I think that idea that you said, and you mentioned earlier too, that finding community, finding your tribe, you know, whether you're a teen trying to find your identity, whether there's a group of L.A. moms I watch and, you know, they're gathering information and, and confirming things as they're trying to find their way through early parenthood and things. You know, it's it's nice to see that and that support you can find around a particular issue or around an identity or around an interest or whatever it is. And, you know, especially like you were talking about your sister, I guess it was, in a small town. If you're in a small town, you don't have the same access to this unlimited pool of resources, maybe your meetup groups or something. And, um, you know, it has really created a, a space for people to find what they call communities of interest.
0: Absolutely. And I think also being in sex ed circles, I find that there are people who have no access to information otherwise or they don't have a community of people where, Someone will relate to their identity if they're in a small town. There are probably other people who maybe identify as, as gay secretly, but they're not allowed to say it. So there's a, there's an isolation. And to be able to, like, give that air. One positive response I got from my little survey was from someone who said they love it, but said it might be a little skewed because she added this. I intentionally only follow slash view positive stuff for the most part, stuff that works for me. I'm not following supermodels or negative stuff, for example. What are some of the steps you recommend if somebody wants to, especially from a self-esteem anxiety standpoint, if it's starting to get to you? Because I feel like it can get to you, but you still keep doing it because it becomes sort of addictive, which you talk about.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that's the other thing that, uh, you know, I didn't used to like to use the word addictive around uh, using the computer, using the Internet and all, because I saw people watching television and looking at a computer screen. It's kind of like, well, what's the big difference here? However, as we've moved toward mobility and we've moved toward uh, social media like Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and we've moved toward dating apps like Tinder and Grindr, they have baked in behavioral drivers that reinforce you coming back for more. So like you said, even though you might not want to do it, you keep on doing it, you keep coming back to these things. So I think that your listener's idea that You curate who you follow. You curate things that make you feel good. And there are things like that. There are plenty of things. You know, there's even some great sort of affirming meditation channels on YouTube or 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 things that you can download, like calm, that that help you to calm those anxieties and all. So you can you can seek that out. Yeah. I think that's great. That curating what makes you feel good.
0: Absolutely, because I think we can also feel obligated to follow certain people in our circles. You know, maybe it's a colleague or a relative who, you can't unfriend your aunt. You know, but if your aunt always makes you feel like crap and you don't want to see their posts that are shaming such and such, you can unfollow you know, so you aren't seeing it, but it's there, there are ways to, to do that. You brought up um, the finding like meditation, perhaps. I love that you talk about the idea of a counter movement. I know that's not the focus of this book, but you talk about kind of the, you know, when a force is going one way, there's like an opposing one. And it made me think of uh, like Little House on the Prairie times. If we went back and told them, I go to a class to meditate, they would like die laughing because They're full of stillness, like they're farming. They they don't have electricity to do much besides read and talk at night, you know. So tell us more about that, like counter movements against this.
1: Yeah. So if you think about um, online life, uh, life in a digital environment, we strip away a lot of our sensual experiences. Most of it is visual. Some of it is auditory. But tactility, the sense of smell, these things are just the, the body is erased, in a sense, in a digital world. So we are embodied creatures where over many tens of th- hundreds of thousands of years, we've evolved to to touch and to feel and to, to be out in nature and to be outdoors. So all these sorts of things in, in a very short span of time have been sort of written off. And, and many people think, well, we don't need nature, we don't need these things anymore because we have this fantastical digital environment that's going to take the place of. But our bodies still enjoy touching things and tactility and, and each other and a hug. And you know, For example, the research shows just holding the hands of someone that you love calms you down Mm. and makes you feel better that's tactility that's the body and touch so there's some counter movements around bringing back the handmade the crafted uh these things that have a high touch high tactility uh sense the idea of for example there's a group called brick here in la where you leave your phone for a little while an hour or two and you sing together and singing also lifts your mood and lifts your spirit. So this idea of bringing the body back, bringing the handmade, the handcrafted, the tactility, I think that, you know, we. the reason I say this is we're in sort of a mental health crisis, physical health crisis right now particularly in this country where we're seeing 30-year highs of anxiety and depressions and obesity and all these things that have to do with the body. And so that idea that we need to sort of remember that we're still embodied creatures and bring back those things that bring delight and happiness and, you know, being outside, get a little sunshine on our face, you know, helps us to be healthy mentally and physically. So You know, these movements that sort of bring the body back are very important.
0: Mm, It was relaxing just hearing you talk about that. (laughs) I mean, hearing about imagining, listening to music, or the feeling when you go out and get fresh air. Yeah. Instead of whatever else you were gonna do, whether it's work out on a bike and or and while you're tweeting and doing your whatever, to actually go out in nature and just feel that and how innate that is.
1: Yeah, it is in innate. Us. And you know, the reason we a hint that we know it's innate, look at some of the popular things on YouTube and for example, things like, to calm down at night. Let's listen to nature sounds. Let's listen to rain. Let's listen to the Amazon rainforest and animal sounds. Let's listen to birds chirping. Let's watch that fireplace on our screen. You know, there's something that's that's very, we had a relationship to nature, our entire evolutionary being, and suddenly we cut that. 93% of people now spend all their time indoors. So think about what that meant where we were, ha, lived with the land and, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not an Amish person. I love technology, but I'm, what I'm saying is we're out of balance and we need to bring that body back and bring nature back and tactility back to balance it. It's not about throwing away devices, but it's, a, it's, a, it's about listening to our nature. And to me, that those rising anxiety levels, those are warning bells that are telling us something's out of balance. That's the key to it.
0: Yeah, I like that because I, too, love technology. And I remember seeing a little pop-up on my screen telling me my, how much screen time I had done the last week, and I was kind of shocked. And uh, it's, it's interesting because I think when you have that balance and you proactively take breaks, you enjoy the digital stuff more, too.
1: Yeah, well, they've said that even going out in nature, uh, you know, there's a myriad of, of, of positive outcomes from that, but it allows the brain diffuse attention. You're looking, oh, look at those clouds. Oh, there's a bird. Your, Your eyes are wandering and your brain is just wandering around. You're not so focused and driven. And that's what enables creativity and those aha moments because you've enabled your brain to rest from that constant onslaught of information. We need those breaks and we're not taking enough of them.
0: That's why we get so many good ideas and we're going for a walk. It's so true, right? You have these epiphanies, these ah ahas. You're like, oh, because there's not so much clutter.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: What is the biggest thing you hope people take away from your book?
1: Well, I hope we will, uh, you know, it's nice to be idealistic and to shoot for the stars and have a wonderful um, goal in mind. I'm all for that. But I think we have to have a very frank honest, national conversation, that our young people are suffering from these anxieties and depression. Suicide is the number two cause of death for 18 to 39-year-olds now, number two. And the thing is, we need to have a conversation saying some of this is being driven by what's going on in social media, the comparative aspects, the addictive aspects, the all-never-measure-up aspects, all these things. And we need to sort of rebalance ourselves and think about our relationship to technology. It's like a horse race. We just shot out of the box with it without really thinking about these impacts. And I think that we've had enough time now that some of the unintended consequences are starting to show up now. And we need to just step back and look at our time. You know, hey, let's have a space where we have a family dinner together without a device, for example. Let's create some sacred spaces where the device isn't constantly in between us, where we can look at each other over a dinner table and have a conversation and then get back to the devices. They'll still be there after dinner. Yes. I
0: love in your book when you talk about someone who helped develop the iPhone saying, we did not imagine this. Like, we thought a phone that could do a couple cool things and that there was like kind of almost regret or like heartache over that, seeing people sitting at a dinner table and everybody's on their device and there's not that connection.
1: Yeah, it's like we've created a monster. That was Andy Grignon from the Apple iPhone team. The first call ever from Stephen Jobs went to Andy. So he took a photo of his kids at the dinner table, not ironically or humorously or anything like, oh, here we are at dinner. And every kid was on their own device. No one was talking. And I was like, wait a minute, are you seeing this? You know, and we kind of laughed about it. But that's really the, the, you know, if you look at the family dinner table today, that's what you're going to see. So that's where we have to kind of roll some of those things back and create some new habits or spaces for our brains to rest, for us to connect to each other, to ourselves, to nature, to our bodies again.
0: And I think that's one thing a lot of people will get from your book is the awareness, which is so powerful to just step back, take a look, You can make changes, and even small steps can be really powerful. Yeah. Learn more about Dr. Julie Albright at drjuliealbright.com. If you'd like to see Julie in person at events, click on the events tab on her site and see if she's coming by in her global book tour. I also asked Dr. Megan Fleming to share a few thoughts on today's topic. Specifically, I asked her this— What are some of the most common signs that digital technology or social media are interfering with a relationship?
2: August, um, I'm thrilled to be talking about tech because I think a number of people were surprised in the reso- recent Cosmo article, which sort of asked, like, are you not in couples therapy? That one of the top five reasons uh, millennials and those who haven't even gotten married yet or sort of put a finger on it, they responded that technology and social media was one of the top five reasons for entering couples therapy. And so I know that you've had an amazing time speaking today um, with Julie Albright and her expertise in this area. And I just want to give listeners some, you know, warning signs and cues to think about and pay attention to in the relationship, because the impact, as you said, on social media is huge. We, you know, partners often feel neglected, and or rejected. And we all know that it feels bad in the brain, just like it does, if it's physical pain, And so when over time, your partner is sort of feeling second fiddle to your phone or device, the reality is that, you know, leaves the relationship vulnerable, right? To either breakup and or, um, you know, an affair or other relationships entering in. So I think it's important that everybody knows those warning signs. So I broke it down into about four that I really want to talk to. And the first one is, if explicitly your partner already talks to you and says, Hey, put it down, right? Put your phone down. Like, you know, they just feel like it's intrusive and it's too much. And so when, if that happens, I think it's important for you to sort of take a step back and say, Hey, you know, we sort of say, can you tell me more? Because if you're not paying attention to the frustration that is causing your partner and you're just sort of, you know, yesing them or saying you're going to change and don't change, the reality, as I said, is that is a huge risk factor. Another warning sign and risk factor is if, you know, you're having an amazing moment and you're just really caught up in it. We talk about the value of mindfulness, right? And in the midst of that, your partner freezes, right? Because they want to capture it in a photo, a picture, or a selfie for social media. Um, I often hear how it's like, it it feels so disjointing from just living one's life. And, you know, initially a partner can give humor to it and, and be engaged, but over time, I've witnessed this, I imagine you have as well, where the partner sort of has either a dislike, they're not even going to engage in the picture, or sometimes even a look of contempt. So, again, another flag or warning sign you want to pay attention to. And I think a third one is, you know, when you might find yourself comparing your relationship in unhealthy ways to those that you are seeing on social media. Because let's be clear, we all know that they're curated to sort of show their best moments and not all of their moments. So, I think. It's important, even if you might feel envy for somebody else's social media, to trust that all relationships are work. And however, when if you do that work in your own, I can assure you that it's priceless. And then it's sort of another tip in terms of, you know, how to... Benefit your relationship is really to create technology free zones. You know, it's everything from not in the bedroom or not at the dinner table to, you know, maybe it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or you check in on a Sunday. You know, what's a day this week that we might go unplugged? I think that, you know, couples need to figure out the, um, you know, it could be technology, it could be work. That's the other thing I hear from clients a lot is like when you're on a device, nobody knows. Is it Facebook? Are you reading a book? Is it something for your work? So just the not knowing, unfortunately, can raise anxiety. So I always come back to this for couples, which is the value of a relationship vision, right? Which is how do I want our relationship to look and feel? And really creating a practice about weekly, checking in and just sort of saying, how do we do? Like, What were areas that we really feel like we did great or we excelled? What were areas that were challenges or things that we learned and we would do differently? And consciously placing our intention and, again, how in a global way, but also really specifically, you want your relationship to look and feel. Because I think it just is an opportunity to you know, conscientiously check in, see where you're at. And when if things like use um, of social media devices is a topic of concern, you even can see whether or not over weeks, say 90 days, what's the trend like? Have you addressed it? Or have you ignored it or avoided it? Seeing those trends, I think gives you a lot of information to when and if you're committed to your vision, turn the tide and take those steps to step into that vision. So as always, Loving to contribute and um, look forward to next week's question.
0: Such awesome points. I especially love the tech-free zone idea she mentioned. And I think the most powerful times to do that are right away when you wake up and right before bed, which is not easy, especially if your phone is like your alarm clock or you're just really into the habit of chilling out or waking up by checking your email and your Instagram and all that stuff. But it changes everything, I swear to you. If you have a partner, consider applying some of the cuddling tips from recent episodes before bed instead. It could be just five minutes. Say you check your email, you look at your phones for a little while, and then take some time without your devices. Or start your day by starting with breathing or reading or journaling or taking a bath. I'm telling you, it is so life-changing. And if you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe on your Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, I would so appreciate a simple review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin. With technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at
2: periodnetwork.com.